the weather is getting pretty rubbish uh, in this country, but uh, normally when we think of Italy, and particularly Milan, we might think of uh, a nice sunny afternoon sat in a piazza, sipping on a cappuccino or something and being very exotic. But I hear from my next guest that the weather is anything but cappuccino weather. Uh, let's welcome to 98 on out, Mr Mark Pugac. Darren, how, how are you doing? Yes, I've, I've been here watching Liverpool. It's snowing really hard here. A good performance by them? I mean, considering that most of their first team were missing, they still had uh, Mane and Salah. They played extremely well. AC Milan were were very, very average. But the Liverpool kids, I mean, they completely changed their back four. They had a teenager in midfield, Tyler Moore. Yeah, they played they played extremely well. It's not the AC Milan that maybe um, your listeners and you and I will remember, of course, the glory days of uh, Van Basten and Hullet and so forth. They were pretty average. But Liverpool, England have England have got three incredibly strong teams in the Champions League with obviously the three who are dominating the league, Man City, Chelsea and Liverpool. They're all in extremely good shape. So, yeah, they were, they were very good. They were very good last night. Liverpool look like they've rediscovered their mojo after last year's sort of uh, blip. But, I mean, that was injury sort of affected, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're missing Van Dijk and they, had a, they were missing all their centre-backs, weren't they? And then the midfield started to play at centre-back and it was just, it, there was just such a big knock-on effect. Oh, no, they are absolutely flying at the moment. And they're brilliant. They're brilliant to watch. And if, uh, I know we're on a cricket podcast, but if people like um, football grounds, the San Siro is still one of the great old grounds and it might not be around for much longer because they're talking about demolishing it. I mean, it's a bit rough around the edges, a bit like Wembley was towards the end, but like the old Wembley, brilliant. A brilliant aura about it, brilliant history about it, brilliant place to go and watch football. So I think, uh, well, travel's not that easy as we know, but still a place to go and see if you can before they knock it over. Forever in my mind, Italia 90 uh, and all that. That's for another podcast, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk for ages. Um, but uh, yeah, don't worry about talking football because um, one of our most outstanding guests that we've had on this show is, was Mr. Craig Johnston. Uh, a oh, member. really? Oh, uh, and um, we found out, or a little bird told me, that he started life uh, as an opening batsman, as an opening bowler as well. Um, and it was only a chance bet with his parents um that got him into football um his parents said to me if you get top grades in all of your subjects at school we will pay for you to go to england for a football trial uh and he won the bet and next thing he was on a plane to middlesbrough and trialing with jackie charlton uh and the rest what, is what a good story darren i didn't i didn't know that that's a brilliant story that's a brilliant find- story and the first I think he's probably the first Australian to score in the cup final as well, wasn't he, for Liverpool in uh, in '86? So that's a great story. I didn't yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, if anyone's interested, it's available on the podcast. Just search for '98 on on your podcast provider. You'll find the crazy. It's an amazing chat, which we just decided. What well, you know, we only wanted five minutes with him because he's obviously a busy man and all the rest of it. We ended up talking for an hour about all kinds of things. And uh, the other things that people forget is uh, his involvement in the Barnes rap, the Anfield rap, and yeah. of course um, his uh, development of the Adidas Predator boot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, well, that's the bit I remember him for now, really, as you say, is developing the boot, isn't it? Yeah. Save mm-hmm. Adidas. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. It's an amazing story. But anyway... <laughs> You've got an amazing story, um, which uh, I've been reading about this week. And um, viewers and listeners will know you best. Well, I think you're you're not you're an all a sports all rounder, really, in terms of broadcasting and writing. Um, but maybe people don't really know you best for cricket. But you've just put together a, a very very interesting piece on the uh, the eighty six 
Ashes tour. Um, do you want to just tell us about that? Well, uh, I, I mean, my background is <clears throat> I'm a cricket nut. I'm an absolute cricket nut. My dad, God rest his soul, um, started his own cricket club 66 years ago, Wandering Club, which still goes very strongly to this day. And my summers were spent. He also, when he moved out of London, moved his family just where I was born, moved us out of London to uh, the vi a village in East Sussex. He said to the local parish, can I have that field on the edge of the village for my cricket club? And they said, yes, you can, but you've got to restart the village team as well as your own wandering team. So that's my way of saying my summers were spent being the undergroundsman to dad. He'd do the mowing. I'd get the 22-yard chain out. We'd run the bar. I'd put the flags out. We had a we had a we had a bar, we had a till like the one David Jason had in open all hours that used to spring back and bite you. <laughs> so it's my way of saying I'm as I'm as obsessed about cricket as I'm about football and rugby. You know, I was that gener my generation, the 70s and 80s generation, the football season stopped and the cricket season started. And you know, my dad would get if I said to him in August, oh, Liverpool haven't started the season very well, he used to look at me and say, do not talk to me about football until the test series is over. It was brilliant demarcation. Anyway, so 1986, I leave school. I'm 18. I'm having a year off before I go to university. And I said to my pal, Rob, let's go traveling around the world, which is, you know, standard stuff. And I said to him, oh, by the way, England are in, in Australia defending the ashes. We went, well, that's going to be fun. So I went to Australia for nine months, worked in bars, pubs, my, you know, gold mine factories, farms and everything. And wherever could, watch the cricket, followed the cricket. And the fifth test at the SCG, I worked in the dining room, so a silver service, which is, means nothing. Silver service is an absolute meaningless, meaningless, <laughs> uh, meaningless thing to say. I served um, Michael Parkinson and his wife. I served Jeffrey Boycott a cup of tea every day, literally <laughs> every day. Uh, and then the famous Alan Lamb, 18 off the last over, I went as a punter and sat on the hill and drank beer all day in the blazing heat. You can imagine what state I was in by the last over. So this is my way, Darren, of saying, I said to a pal of mine, Jonathan Overend, who worked with me at Five Live, who worked with me at BBC Essex, who's an Essex man through and through, let's make a podcast about this series because no one really talks about it. So we've made an eight-part podcast called Inside the Tour, all the stories from 86, 87. Anybody you want to hear from, you will. Botham, Gower, Gatting, Lamb, Border, Lawson, Small, Freitas, Peter Taylor, Peter who? The guy they picked by mistake. Um, Pat <laughs> Cash, because the Australians yeah. were playing the Davis Cup the same time as England won at the MCG. So we've had a we've had a lot of fun hearing all their stories from 86, 87. Peter Taylor. And that's a, yeah. So the story goes that they they picked him when they were supposedly looking for Mark Taylor. Was that was that the is that the story? That, I mean, that's basically the story. So Alan Border said that in those days, another man of Essex, of course, Alan Border, when it comes yeah. to county cricket. Alan Border said that in those days, here's the captain had no input into the test selection. He was handed a piece of paper and gone, this is your team. And he looked at the team for the SCG test. England had already won the series two up. And he said his first thought wasn't, why is Peter Taylor in it? Because they dropped Greg Matthews for the Sydney test match when he was a New South Wales ma a man and obviously an off at the SCG. He said, we didn't have an opening batsman. So he thought, well, did they mean Mark Taylor, not uh, Peter Taylor? So this whole story has gone on and on and on. The headline. It, I kept a diary every day, Darren, which, and we've used the diary in the podcast. So I've gone back to various pages and all the newspaper cuttings I kept. And the one is Peter Who, front page of the paper. The Sun yeah. in Sydney, Peter Who, Australia pick mystery spinner. And so this is whole business. Have they picked the wrong tailor? Alan Border doesn't know because he hasn't had any input in the selection. 
I mean, it's a brilliant story. We found, we tracked him down. Peter Taylor lives on a sort of cotton coffee farm on the New South Wales Queensland border. He was utterly charming. Played along with a couple of poms, you know, cracking Peter Who jokes, and said he's got in his in his office. One side of his office is a big uh, newspaper cutting board of Peter Who, and the next a week later, when he'd been one man of the match, taken his first three wickets were getting were no were were, were Gower Lamb Botham, his first three wickets, one man of the match. Then he's in the World Cup squad, which they win. So he was great fun, self-deprecating, played along with us. And, and it's Alan Border said, I have never heard him talk about it. Well, you have now. And did he did he play any other games or any other test matches after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played, I think he played, I think he played 13 test matches over about the next. He was 33, I think, when he was called up. Yeah, he did. He, no, he wasn't a one test wonder. He played a, a dozen test matches. Was in that World Cup squad. Was a was a really good off-spin bowler, and people will remember at the time. It's less so now. The SEG took a lot of spin. Jeff Lawson was captain of New South Wales and told us on the pod that quite often he would pick three off-spinners to play in in Sheffield Shield cricket at the SEG. As as Jeff said, it's it, it was Peter Taylor's own dung heap. You know, <laughs> he knew it would spin. <laughs> he was he was he was really charming, Peter Taylor. It's a really good point you make there about um, grounds having the characteristic, particularly in Australia. So um, Sydney at that time taking spin, Perth being a fast bowler's paradise. Yeah. Um, but that's all. Even Adelaide, which was the most picturesque or amongst the most picturesque grounds in the world, uh, all of that's gone now, isn't it? Perth is not even the same ground anymore. Adelaide looks completely different. All of these grounds, a uh, lot more corporate, a lot more, you know, uh, the, other, the other problem, Darren, is that um, is that a lot of them are drop-in pitches now because of Aussie rules football. Yeah. So that's what the issue is. So Adelaide, it's, I mean, I'm very privileged. I've done three Ashes tours down under for BBC Radio. And Adelaide is a stunning place. I would say go there. It was stunning with the old ground and the new ground is just as stunning. But it's a drop-in pitch because they play Aussie rules there. Perth, as you say, the whacker, they've moved away from what even a Perth test match this year. But it was quick. Problem always was in Perth for the overseas bowlers was they all bowled a bit too short because they thought it was so quick and then you could leave it on legs. You know, if you're an Aussie batsman, you knew if it let pitch a certain what's going to go over the stumps. It did have all its own characteristics. You're right, and it's not quite... And the MCG is obviously a drop-in pitch because they play Aussie rules all over it all winter. So you're absolutely right. The characteristics of these grounds are not as acute as they were. Interesting, I always remember doing an interview with Shane Warne once and he told me that his favourite place to bowl in Australia was actually the Gabba because right. it got enough bounce. I think we all get obsessed, don't we, that every spin bowler wants it to turn miles. That's how you get a wicket. Well, if it turns too far, you're not going to get anyone out because it's going to miss the stumps or miss the bat or, or miss the wicket. But if you get bounce, the close catchers come into play, don't you? So Shane Warne loved the Gabba because it had enough bounce to get people in trouble as well as turn. Now, that series was loaded. You've already mentioned uh, a few names there, but on both sides, loaded with... Great characters um, uh, in the in the history of Ashes uh, locking of horns, um, and also it was sort of like the heyday of the, that England team, you know, that which sort of if you go back to sort of the eighty one Ashes and Gower, Gooch, Gatting, um, and a certain It Botham, um, and I think by eighty six he was fully into the. Um, blonde streaks, mullets, yeah. blazers. Um, 
And I believe that Elton John was um, part of the unofficial touring team at that time as well. Well, Elton John was supposed to be on tour in Australia, but it had an operation on uh, nodules on his voice box, I think, so couldn't sing, but still wanted to go on tour. I mean, both, both, Ian both of them said to us, his nickname was EJ the DJ. And then in Melbourne, where they, won the, where they won the test series, they all went back to Elton John's suite in Melbourne. And he, Elton John, DJed all night. Just He partied all night. And he'd sent, obviously this is way before, MP3 players and so forth. He sent his driver off to another part of town and came back with two trunks full of CDs and, and, and basically partied. He'd, and Phil DeFreitas, who's a 20-year-old kid from the MCC ground staff playing for Leicestershire, says, I can't quite work out what's going on. Here I am in a suite in Melbourne with Ian both of my hero, having won the Ashes, and Elton John is our DJ. I mean, it's <laughs> off the scale. I, I, I describe it, Darren, as the last of the old-fashioned tours, if you like, you know, where they had a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, listen, you know, I would say listen to our podcast, the stories they tell in the run up to the first test with David Gower and Bundaberg run and Ian Botham and uh, America's Cup yachtsman, because that was going on in Perth. I mean, it wouldn't happen today. They had so much fun. And it was the last hurrah. You're right. It was the last hurrah of that team. If you think about it, that Botham, Gower, Gatting, Lamb team never really did anything again, did they? You know, the Ashes went. They never won the Ashes again. Simple as that. 1980, uh, the next year, it... All went wrong for Mike Gatting. He lost the captaincy. 1988, England had a different captain against the West Indies every day of the week. Yeah. It was it was, it was, was the last hurrah for this team of a generation of us, I dare say you and me, that we grew up with, who dominated our teenage and early 20s years. Um, this, this, was, this was their last big staging post. It's quite an interesting thing. When you talk to players of that ilk, uh, we had Dean Headley on. I uh, was talking to him recently. Um, and just how dressing room culture, the game, uh, and touring is now a completely different thing. Uh, and I know right now COVID has made it even worse, but certainly, as you say, in the 80s, uh, and when you go to these dinners and listen to these guys talk, or as, you know, when you, you, when you talk to them on your, uh, your podcast or your interviews, um, there's a lot more stories and they could do things that are just not even possible these days with mobile phones and Twitter and all the rest of it. No. I mean, I, I was trying to, the last Ashes tour I went on was 13-14 and England got humped 5-0. I think it was in Adelaide somewhere and I had a drink in a bar with a very young Joe Root before a test. And it was like, I mean, it was good. It was really nice to do that. And Stuart Broad and just like, Boys, you know, I'm, I'm, we're having a drink. You're having a drink, and you know, we happen to be in the same bar and exchange a few pleasantries. But you can understand why they, you know, they don't want to be caught in the wrong place. And the, the, what we're talking on now, the, the mobile, in a way, is a dreaded thing for, for curtailing that. And it's a shame because they always talk. I mean, Mike Afton's exactly my age, you know, I'm 53, and I remember him. I went on a tour once as a, a reporter to New Zealand, and he was like, "We've got to enjoy going to these places. It can't just be about cricket." Listen. It's the old CLR James thing, isn't it? What what is it? What is he, he, he who knows who only of cricket knows whatever it is? It's true, isn't it? Get your head up and enjoy the environment. We're talking about a world without COVID. Enjoy the environment that's around you. Enjoy the culture. Appreciate the opportunity that as fit young men you have of going to these amazing places and playing this game. But enjoy the place you're in as well. It can't just be about nets and forward presses, can you? And catches at third slip and net run rate and all that. You go absolutely mad. So. Good on them. Play hard, work hard. That's what they did in 86, 87. 
CLR James. Now that's her name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for anyone that, that, that's sort of scratching their forehead at this one, uh, CLR James was a fantastic uh, West Indian um, Marxist historian, I think, if my memory. Yes, is. I think he probably was. But what does he? Uh, and we've got to get it right. Can you can you tap it into your computer? What does? It's something like, basically. What are you saying? Is if you only know about cricket, you don't know about life, which is absolutely right. It's it's a brilliant expression, which we which we can dig up. What does he of cricket know? Or you know, you, you you're at a computer, can't you? Can flick it up. But it's a great it's a great way of approaching life, frankly. That, but particularly if you're a sportsman, you know, get, get have a hinterland, have a have have some interests in what's going on, not just your game. And they 86, 87. Oh, don't worry, they had a hinterland. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. Was that also um the tour of David Gow and the 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 the, the Tiger Moth or the Gypsy? No, moth? that was the next one. No, that was when it was beginning to unravel. That was 1991, and he and he and um Essex's favourite Graham Gooch had different approaches towards life oh, in those days. But, but but this was the tour um, where they won uh, they won both one day series as well as the Ashes. So because the America's Cup was taking place in Fremantle in Perth, they had between the fourth and the fifth tests a one day series involving Australia, West Indies, and Pakistan. And this is the West Indies of Richards, Richardson, you know Greenwich, you know all the fast bowlers, and they won that. And then they won the World Series triangular with the West Indies. They won absolutely everything. I mean, it was incredible. I'm just flicking here, trying to yeah. find uh, CLR James quotes. Uh, I'll have to. I'll have to. Oh God, there's there are so many. There are so many. Oh, hang on, here we go. Quotes cricket. The patience and forbearance of the poor are amongst the strongest ball. Oh no, no, that's not it. I don't know. Here, here it is. Here it is. What, what here it is, Darren. What, what do, do they, they know of cricket who only cricket know? That's it. That's it. That's it. CLR James. Yes. Yeah. So um, if people want to get involved and uh, and, and uh, listen to your podcast, what where, what is the podcast called? Where, and, um, uh, it, well, it, the provider is called Audi, A-U-D-D-Y, um, and it's called Inside the Tour. So it's a strand. They did the British and Irish Lions in 97 uh, in South Africa, and we're the second one. So Inside the Tour, um, um, provided by Audi, A-U-D-D-Y, and on Monday night, we're doing a live stream with Alan Lamb, who I think people probably know because he's been very public about it, has been having treatment for prostate cancer. And we're doing a live a stream with uh, Prostate Cancer UK on their social medias, actually on mine as well, at Mark Pugach, but at Prostate Cancer UK um, and on the Audi stream as well. And Gladstone Small is going to join us for a bit, of course, who played on the 86-87. Alex Stewart, of course, who played a lot with Lamb, is going to join us as well, whose dad, Mickey, was the first ever manager on that tour we didn't have a in england and never had a manager before that yeah, yeah um you know i think on that tour they had a manager a scorer and a physio i mean now you've got about 35 people i think you've got more people <laughs> in backroom staff so um it's it's just uh, it, it's also if you're australian and i made the point when we we emailed alan border to say would you take part and he very kindly said yes and i did make the point of i'm not getting you on just to laugh at you because you lost alan this was this was the recovery from australia this was the Nadir losing the Ashes again. And obviously they didn't lose the Ashes again, as we know, until the Oval 2005. But more than that, they were dominant in world cricket throughout the, throughout the 90s. You know, they won the World Cup 
1999, 2003, you know, they beat the West Indies. Obviously, they hammered England every time. This was this was absolutely rock bottom. And Alan Border with Bobby Simpson said, right, now we rebuild. And they did. And as you say, Darren, the people who played in 86, 87, who were green, like um, Jeff Marsh, like Merv Hughes, like David Booth, like Steve Waugh in particular, that was the start of their massive ascent into being serious test cricketers. It's interesting, isn't it? Because everyone, particularly of our age, I'm a little bit older than you by one year, um, um, we have fond memories of the West Indies dominance uh, of the yep. 80s, etc. But um, the kind of Australian dominance from that period on into the 2000s is, 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 is I think, um, not given the... the, the, the um, uh, what's the, the credit? The credit, the credit exactly. A, the credit. Yeah, yeah. Because they also, amongst all that, and you're right. I mean, they they were unstoppable in World Cups, but they also went on that run of um, test matches and test series, mm. didn't they? Was it 16 mm. or 17? Yeah, yeah. Um, unbeaten. Um, I mean, it was quite a side, and the, the 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 characters that it was. It seemed to me to there was always this, and there still is this Australian competitive fighting spirit and you and it's it's bred these characters that we know down the years jeff thompson dennis lilly etc et but it comes through with um you know ricky ponting steve war matty hayden uh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I agree with you entirely and i've often thought this and i've said that i think it's simply this obviously one australian england rivalry you're never going to give australia any credit at all <laughs> and two i mean i know growing up as a white middle class kid in the 80s the west indies were seriously cool you know, if I, I'm looking at Viv Richards coming out to bat, chewing gum with a with a cap on, no helmet, or um, you know, Joel Garner bowling at the speed of light, or Michael Holding whispering death in '76, or Greenwich and Haynes, you know, knocking off 220. It seemed look they're seriously cool in a way that if you're English kid, Australians are never going to be cool. You might admire them, but they're not. Steve Waugh's not cool. Viv Richards cool, coolest man on the planet. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's why. I think why, particularly if you're a white kid like me, you look at the West Indies and you go, wow, look at that. Whereas the Aussies, you go, well, why can't we be more like them? Because they're always winning. Do you know what I mean? I think that's yeah. I think that's what it was. Yeah. One of the yeah. very first test match I ever went to, my dad took me to the Oval uh, in 1980. Uh, and at that time, there was this huge West Indian uh, community in Brixton, which is, as you know, yeah. just down the road. Uh, and the West Indies team at that time used to say they used to love playing at the Oval uh, and you mentioned 76 as well, being a happy hunting ground. But you went to the Oval and it was like being in Barbados or Jamaica. Yeah. The crowd was yeah. at least 80% full of... Uh, yeah. It was a home uh, test match, the Oval, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I think and, that's why I think that's why a lot of my generation as well really want the West Indies to do well. And I hate yeah. the West Indies doing bad. I hate the... I mean, they're doing better. But I hated it when they did really badly. Also, because... You, and I'm sure you've talked about this with your, with your test players you've had on. If you love test... If you love cricket and test cricket... There aren't enough test cricket teams for one of the traditional powerhouses to be crap. You need everybody to be good. If you like football and France are rubbish for a bit, it doesn't matter because Holland will be great. But if you like, if basically if you like cricket or rugby union, you need the traditional teams to be strong for the game to be strong. It doesn't do the game of cricket any good if, you know, when the West Indies were, were, were bad and badly run. You know, you need everybody to be vibrant and well-organised and, and have interest in their own countries. And to have really good teams so that when they come, when they tour, particularly obviously when they come to England, you want to go and watch them. Wow, did I want to go and watch the West Indies in the 80s? Too right, <laughs> I did. Everywhere. Wow. 
Yeah. And it was yeah. cool and you loved it. And oh. no one no one complained if England were on the sharp end of a battering. Um no. <laughs> what we expected. I mean, far off the backdrop to 86, 87 is that it is with David Gow, who's brilliant about it in the first couple of episodes, is that he was captain in 85 against Australia on border when he was, people might remember, Gow batted beautifully, absolutely beautifully, and England won the Ashes. Then he goes to the West Indies that winter, and what happens? England get beaten 5 0. So, which they, which they did, because obviously they'd, had, they'd been beaten 5 0 in 84 at home, hadn't they? So you come back to the start of the 86 summer and Gower's a bit bruised because um, he's just lost 5-0. Then they have a really bad series, a bad test match against India and he loses the job to Mike Gatting. So, you know, the way, and as we said, in 1988, England had a different captain every test match. I mean, the West Indies wreaked havoc throughout English cricket in the 80s. The Blackwash series, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Two of them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, right, now with your broadcasting hats i'm going to ask you as a broadcaster um as you and i talk the ashes are underway we won't talk about what's going on because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to yeah spoil, i don't want to spoil the mood but yeah um there's a lot of talk uh and cricket fans seem to love a moan about anything um and the fact that this uh is tucked away on bt sport uh and and it, it opens up the wider conversation about cricket being inaccessible to the masses since 2005 when um, the famous series then uh, and the accusation that putting cricket behind a paywall uh, restricting the broadcasting um, has stifled interest in the game have you got any views on that Mm -hmm. well plenty of views on that (laughs) right (laughs) The first thing to say is, because when I say this, well, you would say that because you work for free-to-air. The first thing I'm going to say is what Sky have done with cricket in terms of its coverage and its breadth and the time they give it and uh, the, the, the detail that, you know, Nasser Hussain and Mike Atherton give it when the third man corner is unparalleled. It's brilliant. I started talking about my dad. If my dad were alive today, I mean, he's been dead 30 years, I would have given him Sky subscription for when he retired to say, dad, you can watch any cricket match you want ever in the world. And here it is. That is brilliant. There is no question about it, but it is also absolutely unarguable in my case that putting it behind the paywall has had a massive impact on cricket's image in the, in the UK on participation in just pure eyeballs availability. And I do not believe that it is beyond the wit of an administrator to marry the two. That's my pure point. I'm not what's because there's no way the BBC or ITV or Channel 4 are going to screen the, the ashes down under. You know, frankly, as soon as the BBC lost home cricket to Channel 4, they breathed a sigh of relief because it cocked up their schedules so much when it rained or it started late or it went, you know, you went on after 6.30 and they had to go to the news. But you, you, I'm sorry, if you're saying to me that putting it behind the paywalls had no impact on participation or eyeballs or image, then I think you're living in cloud cuckoo land. But I do accept completely that the money that satellite television has given has been an absolute lifeblood to the ECB and therefore to counties. My, so therefore, you need some imaginative administration, and we don't have very imaginative administrators in sport in the, in the UK as a whole, to say, how can we ride these two horses? And if you say, well, that's a load of crap, Mark, I'll just simply point you towards this. Football maybe is not the best example because it's a world game. I'm very proud, Darren, I'll tell you this. I presented the England-Denmark semi-final to 28 million people on ITV. That's the biggest figure for a single channel, before people talk about the final, because that was on two channels, for a single event ever in this country. 
Now, 28 million people do not watch Man United Liverpool on a Sunday on Sky, do they? No, no, no. Two million people do. My point being, how many people are out there? The Rugby World Cup final, 10 o'clock in the morning in Tokyo, England, South Africa, we had 12 million people. How many people watch a club rugby match? It shows the interest is there. You get home from school. I get home from school as kids in the holidays. Sit down. Mum says, what are you doing? I went, I'm here for five days. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about I'll walk the dog. And I'll do my job, but I'm here. So I'm saying imaginative cooperation. You need the money from these. You need the money from satellite TV. You certainly what they do in terms of their editorialism is fantastic. And, and, and their detail and the fact that it's T20 in Bangladesh, you can watch it. But you need the eyeballs for the next generation because there's no point being the most well-off sport 20 years down the line, which nobody watches, which is an anachronism, and which nobody therefore plays. Wow. Lecture over. <laughs> no, perfect. And I think you've just got my mind turning. And it hasn't harmed football. In fact, football, um, and again, I'd say Italian 90 was the lighting the touch paper for Sky, Premier League, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the reason the, the reason it hasn't harmed football, I think, is because it's such a behemoth. It is so big. It is so big. And also, it hasn't harmed football, but England, every England match is live on free to air. I would say yeah. that because I present them, but uh, <laughs> I don't present, you know, but every England match is live on free to air. That's why it hasn't harmed football. Football is a so big and so massive. And don't forget that my, my boy, age 23, knows as much about Barcelona as he does about Chelsea. You know, it's, it's in Italian 90, you and I were going, God, who are these Cameroonians? They're good. I wonder whether now they all know them all. Oh, he plays in France. He plays in Italy. He plays here. It's so big. And every, every England match and every, a major championship to so every European championship, every World Cup, because of the listed events, has to be free to wear. They took Test cricket off a listed event, and I do not understand why. They took it off the listed event list. Yeah, and that's right. And cricket could learn a lot from the way that footballs uh, handle its relationship with the media and paywalls, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, and I think rugby as well. I think rugby as well. To be honest, Darren, when yeah. when there was talk about the Six Nations leaving free to air, I'll be honest with you. I rang a friend of mine, as a rugby journalist, and went, "If you want to make rugby a completely um, a minority sport, you take the Six Nations off free to air by all means. Yeah, if that's what you want to do, because England v Wales is a massive event. Yeah, yeah my I've got two big sisters. One lives in Essex. They don't want their marriage." sports people and their children all sports man but they don't watch league football or rugby or whatever you know but they watch england wales in the six nations um and they watch you know they watch england in the world cup football of course they do the one uh, i'll tell you what i'll be devil's advocate it's not my view but i'm just going to chuck this in there because uh, yeah. <laughs> i want to get a rise out of you but if you remember uh let's say so let's go back to the early 80s all right and you're sitting down, uh, and it's whatever, Thursday night, I think it used to be, on Points of View with Barry Took. <laughs> and you'd have uh, so-and-so housewife from wherever. I sat down to watch the television on Sunday afternoon, and there was wall-to-wall cricket on BBC One. There was snooker on BBC Two. ITV had horse racing. Why, oh, why, oh, why am I paying my licence fee? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know. That's for, I, I saw. I saw. Um, I read the Sunday Times. There was a thing in the Sunday Times last week, and it went BBC Two. Stockport v Bolton in the Cup. Is that the best it can do? You know, I 
Oh, there's an example. So I present the FA Cup on ITV. It's also live on the BBC. The FA Cup is the oldest and greatest cup. Actually, the Scottish Cup might be older. Sorry, Scottish fans. It's the, <laughs> it, but it is the most famous cup competition in the world. You can watch every single FA Cup match free on BBC or ITV. How good is that for the exposure of the FA Cup? Mm. How good is that? So you cannot, you can't please all the people all the time. And I, I was at Lords when Graham Gooch made his three hundred and thirty-three, and I know they pulled away to go racing when he was two hundred and ninety-eight, not out or whatever. Else. And of course that, and of course people say, to me, "Well, that's why we put it on uh, a paid TV because they would never do anything like that." I accept all that. So I come back to some imaginative argument. And the last thing to say is, if the next 25-year-old graduate says to me, but Mark, you don't understand how the youth today consume TV and sport. It's not linear like in your day. They like to do it on digital clips or whatever. I just go, so I've I've slightly showed off about the semi-final, so I'll do the final, which obviously the BBC had a bigger figure than us. 33 million people watched the European Championship final between England and Italy, yeah? So that's all being consumed digitally as a 25-year-old graduate. That's not linear. Of course, it's damn linear. The entire family sat down to watch it together. So stop trying to be too smart with your graduate degree certificate. And actually, do you know what I mean? What do people want to do? It's a collegiate. Sport is, sport is the one thing you can't record. You can oh, record sorry. the X Factor. You can record the X Factor. You can record Strictly. You can record Heartbeat or whatever. You can't record sport. It's not the likely lads in the 1970s. Someone will tell you the score. (laughs) Someone will tell you the score. You've got to watch it live. (laughs) And you can't miss Roy Keane either, can you? (laughs) You cannot miss Roy Keane. Do you know what my... If I've got five ambitions left in life, I don't know what the other four are, but one of them is to take Roy Keane to Lords. Can I come? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I, I, I think underneath it all, he'd quite like it. It's, I, I mean, sports like people it. are sports people, aren't they? You, you, I don't. I don't think you could possibly find anyone um, that, who's a, a sportsman at a, a no. serious level would say, "Oh, I can't stand golf. Or I can't stand." No, no, because they like the professions. And this is my thing about Roy Keane. Everyone, everybody asks me about it. I don't blame. He's a professional, and I think if you took him to Lords, and you. Um, he may probably doesn't know the laws, but if he doesn't, you tell him the laws, then I think he'd immediately switch into the professional mode. He'd probably be fascinated about how a batsman decompresses between each ball. I think that his, do you know what I mean? Mm. You know, they go for a walk to square leg and they can't be, you know, we've said it a bit earlier, you've got to just switch off for a little bit. I think all that stuff would absolutely fascinate him as well. I really do. Well, I'll tell you what, on t- to end this wonderful uh, interview, and, and many thanks for joining us, Mark, but, you tee it up, I will pay for it, and let's get Roy Keane <laughs> down to Lords. And uh, let's we've have got it. to be able to do it between us because I know you're. I know you're a member. I'm a member. We've got to be able to do it between us, haven't we? Yes. I think. I, 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 when am I next going to see him? I'm going to say, say. I think he'd really enjoy it. I think, I think he think would. Really I think we'll put him in a. Bo- I mean, we'll put him in a box oh, for obvious reasons. Yes, we'll put him in a box because the other thing is that obviously working with Ian Wright as well. These people, they're incredibly patient, but you know we've all got a damn phone, and and you know everybody wants a selfie. No, so, uh, we'd have to... actually, there's another tangent. Righty, I've heard, is a very decent cricketer, or was. Um, there, there was a picture, I think, before the 93 Cup final. They're all in the nets, I think. David Seaman, good Yorkshire, probably bowls. I mean, the, uh, in the old days, they used to... Arsenal and Tottenham uh, used to have the play... You know, the old days when you 
played first division football on a Saturday, they'd often play on a Sunday. Glenn Hoddle loves his cricket. Mm. Oh, I've talked to cricket a lot with Glenn, and Ali McCoyst is cricket nuts. Right. I actually texted him the other day and went, enough of Scotland trying to qualify for the World Cup. Have a listen to my podcast. You know, <laughs> But Glenn, Glenn, absolutely, Glenn Hoddle loves cricket. Absolutely loves cricket. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think, you, I think there's, as you've just said it, Darren, there is, a, there is a, a sort of an assimilation and a recognition that these people at the top of their game and how professional they are, and, and therefore if you've played cricket for England or football for England or football for Scotland, you know, you're on the same zone, aren't you? You know what it takes and you know what's going on. Oh, yeah, no, you could, they, and I, quite often, actually, they like to talk about the other sport. Do you know what I mean? They quite don't want someone to come up to them and say, talk me through that goal at Watford, will you, in 1983? They'd much rather say, do you know, oh, what about leaving Stuart Broad out? What do you think about that? You know. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, I'll tell you what, let's make this happen, okay? Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll get a box. Um, We we can do that. That's not a problem. I can arrange all of that. Uh, well, I tell you what, we'll get Righty as well then, because, you know, Righty will like his cricket. Yes, we'll do all yeah. that. Yeah, we'll get a yeah. box with the ball. Yeah. And maybe even have a, have a word with your oppo, Mr Lineker, and get him down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as as you know, he's played at Lords. Yeah, he has. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, yeah. He's, uh, I mean, he's, 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 revoltingly talented at all the different sports which is unfair i mean you know just let them be good at one not all of them but yeah did he come up with that great line he played against germany at Lords, didn't he in the mcc game and he got one and he said i always score one against germany yeah <laughs> you can you can make those gags when you've scored in a world cup semi-final <laughs> mark Pugach, what an absolutely superb chat many thanks for joining us just before we go Bless. just please repeat the podcast where people can know um, so it's at, it's inside the tour, all one word. And if you go on Twitter, be at inside the tour. And Audi is the name of the podcast provider. All three, of course. A U D D Y. Um, inside the tour is the Strand, where obviously where the second series, eighty six, eighty seven, eight parter, made by Jonathan Overend, once of Burnham on Crouch and BBC Essex, as I was BBC Essex. And um, I hope you really enjoyed some really, really good fun. Uh, Jonathan's a brilliant broadcaster, but a brilliant editor and producer. And um, I think, I think um, particularly if the first test doesn't go very well, have a, have a listen and enjoy. But apparently thunderstorms. I'm hoping the snow goes from Milan to Brisbane quickly. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Mark Pugach, yeah. many, many thanks for joining us, uh, and we'll catch up soon. Pleasure.